volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello, and welcome to season six of Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership. I am Sal Sylvester, your host and founder and CEO of 512 Solutions, an executive coaching and leadership development firm based in Boulder, Colorado, helping organizations create healthy, aligned, and more human workplaces. As you know, this season is all about creating healthy and aligned teams at the top, executive teams, senior leadership teams, extended leadership teams. And today we're going to focus on global leadership teams. As our world gets more complex, more global, organizational structures are more matrixed, it's increasingly important for leaders to develop cross-cultural competence. And just because you've traveled internationally or you're from another country doesn't make you culturally competent. So today we have a very special guest who's an expert in this area. I've personally had the privilege of working with her, with some of our global clients, and this is just a really insightful interview. Her name is Mary Beth Lamb. And you may have heard of it. It's called the three C's of business, global business, chaos, crisis, and constant change. Well, for the last 30 years, Mary Beth Lamb has helped businesses in more than 20 industries and on five continents safely surf those three C's, the tsunami, if you will, of global business. And she does that by helping them build top performing, culturally competent organizations, leaders, and teams. Along the way, she's got a lot of experience doing this. She's built three successful consulting companies in Europe and North America, and she's learned more than three languages. She co-authored a book on women in global business. She contributes frequently to global business media and teaches global leadership and building peak performing virtual team strategies at three U.S. graduate schools. Mary Beth also has five children who are now addicted as she is to living and traveling worldwide. Uh, in fact, in the next couple of months, one of her daughters heads back to Asia and a son leaves for a job in Latin America. So stay tuned. This is a great episode that will give you a couple of key tangible takeaways, skills, abilities, competencies that are going to be, if they're not already, critically important for you in your career as we work more and more in a global business environment. Let's head out to the interview with Mary Beth Lamb now. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have this conversation with you outside of our business context, and it certainly will build on the work that we've done together. You are a cross-cultural expert, so I'm super excited about this conversation. Before we get into cross-cultural competency or cultural competency, let's start with culture. What, what is it and why should we care about it in the workplace? Culture matters. That's 
the fundamental premise of any interculturalist. And what we believe is that culture is any group of people with common rules, and often those rules are unspoken. So given that countries can be cultures, organizations can be cultures, teams have cultures, generations, ethnicities, religions, all of these are examples of different cultures. And an anthropologist would say that when any group becomes larger than say 500, we need to create a common culture, common norms, common values, so that we can more effectively communicate, work together, save each other, protect each other, and get things done. So in the context of business, my belief is that culture impacts everything we do from the moment we get up in the morning to when we go to bed at night. And that's because most of culture is programmed into our brains, almost mm -hmm. like a software program by the age of three. So that's before we even really have memory. We have already learned what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, even what is possible and impossible. And very often, the way people model that behavior to us in our culture is the most powerful lesson. Mm -hmm. It was maybe never taught us explicitly. And that's why it's so difficult to share our cultural norms with others. It's kind of like the old fish in the water. I don't know that I'm in water because I've always been in water. So that's why culture is important. And in order to be able to be more effective working across cultural differences in organizations, whether it's all these differences that make a difference, but then also to do it in a virtual environment, that's a very complex mm set of right. rules. Yeah. Because on top of the cultural norms, we're also working across language differences. And we know from linguistics that so much of how we think, act, and behave is embedded in the words. And if we use the words differently, for instance, if you're using Chinese words, it's often the lack of the definition that makes the word powerful. Or if I took Chinese that is spoken in mainland China, and then I compared it to the Chinese that's spoken in Taiwan, the words are not even just different, but the language is different. The way it actually looks is different. Mm. And so even if we're speaking the same language, we impugn very different meanings. And of course, you can even see that region to region or generation to generation. I'm always trying to ask my kids to interpret the slang to me that they're speaking. And sometimes right. I think those generational differences can be the most powerful of all. Yeah, for sure. Well, a couple of thoughts. One, I grew up in a very like strong Italian Catholic East Coast family. So your comment about culture is ingrained in us by the age of three, like what I find myself as I've grown, matured, gotten older, just like challenging, like, why do I believe that? Where did that come from? My yeah. sense is a lot of that has come from a culture that like we can't even explain. I, I know about the food and the pasta and the meals at Christmas <laughs> and things like that that are very very attached to, but the way that I am is 
maybe driven quite a bit by the culture that I grew up in. Exactly right. Until we're faced with another set of rules and norms Mm. or in the workplace, we're bombarded with multiple. I can be working with Indian colleagues and colleagues from Somalia and first generation Somalian Americans are different than second generation Somali Americans. And I can be working with people from different countries, different organizations, different generations, all at the same time. The goal is not to stereotype. It's the exact opposite of that. When we're culturally competent, what we try to do is, first of all, be aware that people think, act, behave, communicate, and so critically in the workplace that they're motivated differently. Mm -hmm. The way that I am motivated as a U.S. American, I was taught that individualism is good. The U.S. is considered the most individualistic country in the world. Mm. So how do we tend to reward and recognize with individual rewards? You stand up, Johnny, you know, everybody's going to clap for you in school. You get a trophy. And it goes on through our workplace that I'm going to get asked to be up and shake the hands of the CEO. But in 80% of the world's cultures, that is not a motivator. That is a demotivator. Mm. I don't do the work by myself. I'm part of a group. When you pull me up and make me different, you've now actually hurt my ability to be effective in the team. So these kinds of things we may never have considered if we haven't had the chance to have them explained to us. So the foundation of cultural competence says, first of all, I need to be aware. Second, I need to accept the differences. And part of accepting them is understanding that one is not right or wrong or good or bad. They're just very different. And they come from a culture's unique history, its geography, its politics, its economic situation, to a degree, what kinds of religions or spiritual traditions it set up. And the way they answered those basic questions, how are we going to thrive in this culture? How are we going to take care of each other? They answered them differently, given that unique history, geography, and politics. So when I understand that, I can say, oh, that's why you have values Mm -hmm. that maybe some are similar to mine, but some are different. For example, we also have a strong U.S. value that we're all supposed to be the same. Well, again, about 70 to 80% of the world says we're not all the same. Hierarchies exist everywhere. But because of the U.S., the white part anyway, the Western spirit of the immigrants that came from Europe, the idea was we wanted to create a flat culture, a Mm. place where everybody had a chance that they didn't have perhaps in the countries from which they came. But for many cultures, extremely old cultures, for instance, for 5,000 years, the Egyptians, the Indians, the Chinese, entire continent of Africa has not just survived, but thrived by recognizing and respecting a hierarchy that has helped them to survive plague, war, famine, everything you could possibly imagine. So to simply say one day, oh no, you should say whatever you think in a work environment, cognitively, I can have a PhD and understand you're coming from, but my whole life I've been told if you're my boss, I should never disagree with you, or I should certainly never challenge you in a public forum. 
Now what happens if I'm working for a U.S. organization and I don't ever speak up? People think, hmm, you know, maybe he's not really good leadership material, that sound. And suddenly I'm off the leadership track. I can learn how to flex my style if I understand that about myself and I understand that about what your expectation Mm -hmm. is. So it's aware, accept, and adapt. We call those the three A's of cultural competence. Nice. I love that. Give me an example. Like if if so, if I take that at a macro level, but then bring it down. You and I have both worked with some leadership teams where there are people all over the world, from Europe, from Asia, from India, on the same 12 or 14 person team. How do we start to think about cultural competence at, let's say, an executive team level? Yes. So you use that idea of aware, accept, adapt. The first part is building that global mindset. And that's that awareness mm. and also that acceptance. And ideally, I would I push leaders to go beyond acceptance. Acceptance is tolerance. I mm. tolerate you. Right. I don't really know how many of us want to be tolerated understood certainly appreciated wow that would be great what a motivator what a way to keep me engaged yeah and certainly i would like to be valued actually valued not just for how i'm the same as you but for how i'm different because the theory of a global organization or any multicultural organization even within a country is we want to take the best of what Everyone has to offer their talents, abilities, their differences in how they think in order to get the greatest innovation, to come up with new solutions, to reduce our natural human tendency in order to have bias, especially group bias. Well, that sounds good to me. Well, then that sounds good to me. Well, then that sounds good to me, especially if there's a hierarchy. These are the things we want in organizations. Organizations, but without cultural competence, we don't have the tools and we don't have the lens to be mm-hmm. able to see it through that different cultural lens and say, is culture a factor in what is going on here? Because it's equally important question. to know when it isn't. Often I hear, I just got off a call with a client this morning where they said, well, you know, it's that culture thing. And I said, Actually, I don't know. It could be, but it could also be that you just have a completely different business issue. Or maybe it's because you're buying a company and they have some very different expectations of what they want out of that purchase agreement than you do. So we have to understand if culture is a factor and not blame it on it. But if it is, then we need to be able to analyze what is what are my preferences? What are your preferences? And then how can we adapt to each other for a situation, for a specific point of time to achieve a specific goal? Not change my behavior as far as I'm permanently going to be a Spanish person if I'm not Spanish, or I'm going to be a 20-year-old if I'm, well, a little older than 20. But to say that I'm going to adapt situationally Mm -hmm. in order to help us be more effective. 
Nice. And that takes practice. Cultural mm-hmm. competence, like any kind of human development, it's a set of muscles. And we have to keep riding that cultural competence spike in order to get better at staying on the road, especially in a global environment where we have a lot of chaos, we have a lot of crisis, we have a lot of conflict. Those are what we call the three C's of global business. It is a tsunami. We never know what to expect on a given day. Well, cultural competence can help us ride the waves of that tsunami Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. having this new lens through which to see the situation and to understand how would I like to work on this? How would you like to work on this? How can we leverage the best of both of our approaches in order to get the ideal solution? Let's talk about some of the knowledge, skills, attributes, or abilities, if you will, of top-performing global, you were there, global leaders and teams. What are some of those key things? If we're new to this concept of cultural competence, or we're just learning about it, what should we be focused on developing so that we can become more culturally competent and effective as a global leadership team member or leader? Yeah. The first attribute that we look for, especially in leaders, is humility. Mm Mm-hmm. Humility. That Now, that word has been bandied about a, a lot since COVID, but yeah. it's existed in the cultural competence discipline for more than 50 years. And by humility, I recognize that there is very little that I actually know <laughs> about right. how right. your cultural software is really operating. And the more I work across time zones, across space or geographies, across organizations, and certainly across disciplines, the more I recognize I don't know. And so I need to step back. I need to observe. I need to ask good questions And I need to catch myself when I start to jump to conclusions. Mm, Yeah. And that's not difficult. I like to use the simple idea of stop, think, and act. When stop, when you catch yourself going to judgment about making assumptions, assumptions trip us up more than anything when we work across cultures, assumptions that people think, act, communicate the same way. Do I know? Have I asked you? Mm -hmm. How do you like to work? Yeah. Give me an example of when you worked on a project like this, who was involved How is it structured? What was the communication style? What tools did you use? What really made the greatest tension on the team? How did you dissipate that tension? What brought the team to trust? These are questions that require us to go slow, to go fast. So a second powerful attribute of effective global Mm. leaders is courage. They have Mm -hmm. to have the courage to say, we need to go slow, to go fast. We need to build trust, first and foremost, with our counterparts, 
Instead of tell, we need to ask. Instead of now, we need to say when. Mm. Instead of what did you hear what I said, we ask what am I missing? Humbleness, humility, courage. All of these are fundamental attributes of culturally competent people. Another C would be curiosity. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. I would also imagine too that maybe another element here is discipline in a way to like continue the development. So I'm humble, I've got humility. So I have curiosity, I'm learning, I have the courage to ask, courage to go slow. But also like these relationships are never ending relationships. Mm. And like the health of any relationship, we have to continually be working on them. The discipline to not forget to continue to remain open, I think would be a a really important skill and attribute. Absolutely. I've got to put a lot of deposits in that relationship Mm. bank. Yeah. Before I ask to take out a single withdrawal. Right. 80% of the world's population operates on that assumption that we're constantly putting deposits in the relationship bank. Mm. I think for us as U.S. Americans, and again, this would be a group norm. It's not true for all Americans, but every group has a norm. It's the top of the bell curve. It'll be true for about 70 to 80% of a group. And cultural anthropologists study groups always with the idea of, First, we look at the group norms or values or preferences, but then we always must take a key second step, which is to look at the individual. You know, Mm. all French are like no French or like some French some of the time. So I need to know your individual history, geography, politics. Maybe you're a Frenchman who spent 10 years in South Africa and seven years working for a Korean company and you have bicultural children. That is a very different French person than someone who grew up in a little village in southern France and has never left France. This is another piece of cultural competence. It's always making sure we go to the individual level. And that's why we have to put those deposits in. I have to get to know you as Sal. You and I are U.S. Americans. Mm -hmm. We're not the same. We have some commonalities, but we have some very different drivers. We have some very different life experiences. The more I understand that, the more I can then begin to do what we call create a culture map. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of differences, but as interculturalists, we've identified about 23 that we think are kind of most important. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't hold 23 in my head. So (laughs) we usually work on with about five. And we believe if you look at those five key differences, They're in what we call a global toolkit that you will be able to name maybe 90% of the time approximately is culture a factor. Mm. And then you'll have an objective lens through which to look at these five key differences. It's built on research that's been done all over the world. It's been validated and revalidated. It's not an Eastern or a Western concept. It applies anywhere. And these five differences really look at how we 
manage time and relationships differently, number Mm -hmm. one. Two, what we think effective leadership should look like, going back to your question, and how we like to make decisions. Number three, we look at, and this is so critical at this time, especially post-COVID and in a rapidly changing world with the greatest mass migration in the history of the planet, we have a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty. And so the third dimension helps us understand Where are you comfortable when it comes to risk and ambiguity? Mm. Are you more risk-oriented or more risk-averse? And where does that come from? And when we look at global teams, that is the number one poison pill of Mm. most global teams, is this very different mindset about how to deal with risk. Some of us say, we just have to go for it, 80% and go, and then we'll retrofit along the way. Others of us say, are you kidding? That's insane. We have to plan. We have to have data. We have to try things. And then only when we're sure we'll be successful will we actually take that risk. Mm. We need both in our global teams. But if we aren't aware of this, we tend to lock. And people will fight each other on this difference until the end of time. Right. Right. Or they'll lose the market opportunity, or they'll miss the window for a new innovation, or the team will just fall apart. The fourth difference is the deepest difference of all. It's about how we want to be rewarded and recognized. Mm. Fundamentally, most of us come from those collectivist, we-oriented cultures that the way we survived was the entire group collected rice. And then when the shogun came and said, I, you give me your rice or I lop off your heads, we all put our little bags together and we paid the shogun. In a very few cultures like the U.S., like Australia, pioneering Mm. cultures, we call them, we had a very different method, which was, you know, Australians, we threw a bunch of crooks on the on the rocks and said, "Okay, survive, figure it out. Same thing true for the U.S. So what motivates us is very differently. And then finally, and perhaps most Mm. importantly, the fifth difference is about what we think effective communication looks like. And this goes back to that statistic I shared, which is that 70% of global teams don't know how to communicate with each other. It's because of this. Most of the world's population has been taught very differently than you and I. In Western cultures, and specifically in Northern European and North American cultures, we've been taught Effective communication is short, direct, explicit, and to the point. I'm going to tell you what I tell you. I tell it to you again, and then I summarize it at the end. I use a lot of bullet points. It's very fact-based. It's very objective. But the preponderance of the world's population has been taught a very different model. It looks like this as opposed to like this. I don't start with my conclusion. I start with the background, with the history, with the context, with how we got here, with how old our company is and what we went through in this war and that war. And then eventually I get to the point. So that's what we call high context communication. And it's perceived as effective when you're indirect, when you loop 
business and personal and social, and they're all interwoven mm. like this. And thus it takes longer. So you can see in a global team, I am looping right now. And I'm not giving you a lot of time to ask questions. Mm. And part of you might be saying, gosh, would you just get to the point, Mary Beth? But that is the point. The point for high context cultures is to never say no, because the relationship is always paramount to the short term task. In our heads, I think, well, I don't know about you, but I've struggled with this concept for 30 years. I'm still being humbled by when I sometimes feel with high context, indirect communicators, I want yes. to say, and you're caught with me. Right, for sure. Yeah, I, I would be absolutely the same way. So we've got a few things here, the culture map, how we manage time and relationships differently, how we think differently about leadership, what it should look like, risk averse versus risk oriented, how people like to be rewarded and recognized and what effective communication looks like, concise or high context. Mary Beth, maybe a final question, becoming culturally competent just because you travel overseas or even just because you're from another country doesn't make you culturally competent. What are your tips? Where would someone start in order to maybe make a step forward in this area? If you travel a lot, you just have a lot of stamps in your passport. And this I'm going to give as a challenge to my dear global leaders. If you've traveled a lot, that doesn't mean you're culturally competent. You've just racked up a lot of miles on airplanes and trains and boats. To be culturally competent, I don't ever have to leave home. That's the good news. Anyone can do this. And likewise, everyone must do this. Because even if I work here in Minneapolis, I am constantly meeting people from different countries, from different organizations, from different generations, from different religions, from different backgrounds, from different parts of the United States. We're all crossing cultures every single day. When I pick up the phone and order something online and I get somebody in the Philippines who is the customer service person, I'm crossing cultures. When mm. I get on a bus and the bus driver is speaking English as their third language, I am crossing cultures. So traveling doesn't give you an advantage. We can all travel to other cultures. We have to get out into our environment. Mm. We have to stop being afraid of what is different. How many friends do we have who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who have very different backgrounds? How many times do we go to events in our neighborhoods that represent different cultures, different generations, different interests than maybe we have. Anyone can start to open that global or cultural lens and become more aware. To become more accepting and adaptable, that takes practice. Mm. And one of the tools we provide is this thing called a culture map. So it takes those 
five differences we just talked about. It lays them out as dimensions. And what we do is we have a two-step process. We take a look at the primary culture, say maybe it's national cultures. We map the national norms on each of those continuums. We create a line across all five. We connect the dots. And that gives us a snapshot of German preferences versus Bengali preferences versus California preferences. <laughs> right. And then we go to the second level. We take my German colleague, my Bengali colleague, we take me as someone who maybe used to live in California, and we plot our individual preferences mm. of the people on the team. Now I have a snapshot of how the people on my team actually like to work. Mm -hmm. Not a group norm, but their individual preferences. Based on that, we can then see instantly where are we similar. Those are commonalities we can build on. Mm. They help us foster the relationship, build trust. Where are we different? Especially where are those unseen differences like that risk orientation or that indirect versus direct communication? Now that I know that's your preference, light bulb goes on. So that's why you never say no to me when I ask you to do something. It's not because you're lying. It's because you've been taught that if I'm your boss, I should always say yes, because that shows that I'm a good employee. Likewise, if you're the one saying no, I can recognize that as your boss, you know what? You also now have an awareness and mm. can begin to adapt to me. And maybe you can start to say, here's a concern I have about this. Or could we look a little closer at the timeline? It doesn't mean just saying no. That might be too far of a shift initially for someone. But this map is a tool that empowers all of us to recognize our preferences, not to deny them, not to denigrate them, not to minimize them, but to recognize them. And then to say, in this situation, how much am I willing to do to flex my style to be more effective working with you, Sal, because I can't change your behavior. I can only change mine. Mary Beth, thank you so much. What a fascinating topic, concept. And in this world that's getting more complex, more matrixed, more global, this is the future of leadership. Everyone should be paying attention to this and be focused on developing our cultural competence. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a joy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.